The Fabulous Masked Man and His Faithful Companion A tale also told as Richard and Beau, or Dick and Dumb. That morning, Richard had come to the city on the local train, commuting for his employment as he always did, precisely according to the schedule that he had prescribed for himself, precisely arriving so that he should arrive at an exact time, for he was a person for whom the exactitude of time and numbers was important, and in all events he was uncomfortable when he was late. He was indeed uncomfortable with incommodious occurrences and inexactitude of any kind, of improprieties, inconveniences, and surprises of any kind. But much to his discomfort each day, this week there stood a certain person at the very egress of the turnstile he should habitually take. There stood that certain person consistently each day within the very teeth of that turnstile, intentionally to impede his passage. And he must so intend, for he stepped into the specific position of impediment upon seeing Richard arrive to it. He did so repeatedly, each and every day, precisely where and when Richard arrived to it. On each occasion, repeatedly and consistently, and without any word whatsoever, this person then urged upon Richard some leaflet or solicitation, holding the same out to him to take by his hand which item Richard each time repeatedly declined to receive, ignoring him in the first instance, charging through him in the second, then fearfully avoiding him, stepping into alternative turnstiles for his escape, until this morning, when, not willing to further tolerate incommodious happenstances such as this and feeling angry, he looked at this person, intending to express his objections forcefully and found himself in amazement upon the visage of this person, or rather, specifically, found himself staring into his eyes, abyssal eyes, fathomless eyes, eyes neither empty nor meaningful, but inexpressibly deep, giving him the sensation of peering into a well, or rather peering while having dropped into that well a stone that he does not hear strike bottom, no matter how long he listened for it. Eyes at the end of the depth of such a well, as he thought of it, more frightening by their distance than their infinity, for they reminded him now of a certain number, a number so large it is incomprehensible, though it is finite, the number one followed by a million zeros. And that is how the vertiginous nausea of these eyes felt to him, like the solitary number one at the lost depth of one million zeros, deep in the empty well of it and alone. There is a name for this number. He thought of it. The handbill was given to him the instant he came out of the turnstile. The poorly dressed man with the Google eyes had given it to him, to him alone, and to none other passing into the city that morning. After he received it, and after he quickly read it, for it was very brief, Richard turned to say something to the man, but he was gone in the crowd. The handbill read, The Emporium, Comestibles and Durables, all kinds. Consignments for all necessities. 
The Emporium offers every item conceivable. At the Emporium, the price is always just. Our motto? We have what you want. All sales final. It was a promising solicitation. Richard therefore found himself before the Emporium upon a whim, though expecting that his whim should make him very late for work, and the which should then unexpectedly result in profound consequences. He found himself before the Emporium upon taking a short walk to a part of Chicago that he had never seen before, to an unfamiliar address, to a warehouse and trade district in which he found there were no persons in the street, a street empty of any traffic, of any noise, of any litter. There was no horse manure on the recently washed paving stones. There was no signage to any of its virtually identical buildings, all evenly and equally the same in size and height. There were no opened windows among those evenly spaced in their uniform brick walls. All doors were identical and evenly spaced, and all were closed, except for that one beside the brass plate on which the Emporium was etched, which stood open to a dark and empty rectangular space, at the rear of which stood a single clerk at a long counter, behind whom was a single central closed door to an unseen storage. Nothing more shall he remember of what occurred there, but for Richard, life changed with the oblivious conversation, with the forgotten transactions which he must have undertaken, with the purchases or requests that he made in which the nondescript clerk honored. He can remember none of this. For evidence of its reality he has only receipts, pieces of paper which periodically appeared among the uncounted coins in his trouser pocket. These, and of course, the packages which incidentally appeared after he found the receipts. He discovered the first receipt as he took his usual seat at his scribing table at the insurance company at which he was employed as an actuary. He found a receipt for an item that he did not remember purchasing, and he had no inkling why he should have purchased such a thing as was there itemized. And he found its package beneath his table, kicking it inadvertently when he adjusted his chair to sit closer. Such oddities and incongruities as these, just as the visit to the strange emporium itself, now began to severally act upon him. Certain peculiar encounters occurring now unexpectedly, but opportunely, giving him a sense on each occasion of a foreboding, fathomless potentiality, just as he had so felt peering into the eyes of the man with the Google eyes at the turnstile, just so he felt serendipitously when he found himself in his customary manner, in his daily employment, in his ordinary tasks, consciously, carefully, inscribing a number at his desk at the insurance company to which he is employed, entering this calculation for the risks of a certain unlikely but calculable hazard for a precise loss into a tabulation upon which his company shall depend 
for profitable premiums and the security of its business, not an untoward number, perhaps, but a number which he realized then was the genuine Google. And finding it uncommonly coincidental, fascinated, he paused to gaze upon what he had put down with ink. Nothing more could be remembered of this moment either, and he wondered that he would have recalled anything of the entire event except that his supervisor, suddenly appearing beside him and startling him, inquired why he had stopped working, and furthermore, why had he been late? When Richard replied sheepishly that he did not know, his supervisor was angry and complained of other careless errors which he had noted, and which, he detailed, had been accumulating in his estimation of Richard for some considerable time, and which now totaled a considerable sum of fault and negligence, that he esteemed too considerable to be disregarded, and which in short should be considered to justify immediate termination, unless Richard should be able to offer satisfactory explanation for consideration. Seeing the Google in this, Richard was speechless, which affirmed the supervisor's considered opinion. B. Edward Poofel, his colleague and his housemate and would-be brother, with whom he had largely grown up, whose scribing table abutted his own face to face, looked down into his accounting sheets before him and anxiously focused upon his exacting transcription, though blushing to hear his brother's humiliation and fearing for his circumstance. Richard reached under his desk and lifted a package to the desk. He pushed it toward the supervisor, who looked astonished, then confused, then more angry, and demanded, What is this? Open it, Richard said quietly. I was walking down the street, a stranger said to me, be careful what you do. Then when waiting for a train, I heard a strange refrain, I'd watch out if I were you, boy, there's something going to happen soon. Some, some, something's going to happen soon. But I get ahead of myself. Let us turn the pages of his life back, back to the beginning of his book. For to understand how remarkable it was that Richard presented his supervisor with this package, knowing what was inside this package, one needs to understand Richard, and to understand Richard as to understand any of us, one needs to understand the momentum of his birth, the projectile of his childhood, the direction toward which he has turned to calculate his life, though in his case, and in the case of most of us, we may be surprised to find there are in fact surrounding us an infinite number of possible directions of infinitely distinctive degrees 
about the fully round compass of what is real. Thus we may turn and take any number of possible directions and see any number of other possible appearances, should we turn to see them and take them to be true. The orientation and subsequent momentum of Richard's life began upon the untimely and unfortunate death of his mother. His father, always an unknown to him, was not a factor in the equation of forces that affected him. His mother had served as maid in scullery to B. Thomas Poofel and his wife, the estimable B. Muriel Poofel. His unfortunate mother was tubercular and scrofulous and possibly syphletic, as well as pregnant, unmarried, and sullied. And so debilitated, she fell to her bed after childbirth and never rose from it. Mrs. Poofel nursed her as kindly as she might, but sin availed justice, and she died miserably within the week. Thence Mrs. Poofel, who had no child herself, took the baby, whom his mother had named Richard after the alleged father, to be as one of her own. Mrs. Poofel was then forty-two years of age, and her husband was so inattentive and disaffected to her that it should not be that she should ever have had a child of her own. But the presence of the infant, perhaps, the stirring of certain emotions within her, or something physiological, if not spiritual, affected her most physically. She even affected a rare roseola upon her own chest, and a certain tenderness to her nipples, and she should have almost begun to lactate. Thus, shortly, she found herself pregnant, and the miracle of her one and only child occurred precisely one year later to the day, the same birthday of poor Richard, to the bewilderment and disapprobation of Mr. Poofel. She named the boy B. Edward Poofel, the delight of her life, and poor Richard should have diminished and disappeared, except that the nursery for him became that of his erstwhile brother and his own wet nurse his brother's, and his toys his, his clothes his, and so on. She kept Richard to be his companion as she might have kept for him a pet monkey, should one be kept clean and mannerly. Mrs. Poofel was the only mother Richard knew, but whether because of her advanced age, or rather because she had herself so insisted, Richard had always called her grandmother, and indeed her stiffly corseted bosom, the indecorous steel pince-nez through which her cold stare peered at him, her ice-white hair worn in a bun braided and tightly coiled in the severe Germanic style, which is her provenance, her austere thin mouth which bore a creasing scar upon a corner by some malicious wound never explained, and which accentuated her natural frown, her utter lack of warmth and her reserved, if not to say dead, affection for him impressed him so despondently as an intended distance and indifference. Having said that Mrs. Poofel was therefore cold and abstract toward Richard is not, however, to deny the genuine generosity of her care for him, whom she treated some better than the orphan and bastard that he was, although she did not favor him as greatly as she did her own son, which was, of course, only natural. 
upon whom she doted as she would a perfumed lapdog, of which she owned several and did incessantly dote. The late Mr. Poofle, Richard could not recall, but whom, if he had, should be remembered for his congenital corpulence, which afflicted his son also, his choleric bluster and congenial laughter, all of which were enormous, and which gave him such a red face that it was often feared he should have a stroke, which in fact he did have upon the occasion of a nasty joke that he played upon his mortified wife. He had planted his toupee upon the floor and stepped on it, and because it looked exactly like one of her lapdogs, when he exclaimed that he had killed it, she had shrieked. Thus he choked to death on his own laughter, or so it spitefully seemed to her. The doctors declared that he had hemorrhaged suddenly and massively in his brain. A veritable fountain of blood splashed the top of his skull, the coroner testified. Prematurely widowed, yet well provided by his dominating partnership in a lucrative insurance business in Chicago, Mrs. Poofle fed well on the corpse of that inestimable wealth for the rest of her life and passed rich morsels of it to many descendants, preserved to feed idle mouths even into the 21st century until it was finally lost in a collapsing scaffold of obscure derivatives on failing assets leveraged forty times over by the best minds and most respectable men of Wall Street, London, and Dubai, which is to say, greedily squandered and craftily purloined. For all of his twenty-some years, Richard slept in a drawer beneath the sumptuous feather bed of his would-be brother, B. Edward, whom he called Beau, his first name, in fact, and whom his mother called Boo-Boo, or simply Darling. Beau and Richard had grown up knowing one another their entire lives, always sharing bath and bedroom and clothing so intimately that each warmly felt the other his true brother and affectionately loved him. But early and often each was taught that Richard, orphan and bastard, must not be brother. Stern lessons that were reinforced by reproving rejection of any scintilla of equity or equality that might be presumed by Richard or Beau. Beau always sat at the spacious dining-room table at his father's former place, with sterling silver service and gorham china, while Richard sat by the sideboard with his pewter spoon and earthenware. Beau's clothes were new and tailored every season, while Richard wore hand-me-downs, over-large for him, cinched to fit. Beau fed on chocolates by his mother's dimpled hand. Richard sometimes got a sticky whorehound lozenge from the raw-boned cook. But Richard was secreted chocolates by Beau, and sitting in the back of the classroom in the attic where Beau's tutor attended to him, Richard overheard and learned his numbers and his letters as well as Beau was taught them. Because he had no paper with which to do his sums in mathematics, he did them in his head and prided himself upon knowing the answers quickly and unerringly. Richard had a knack for numbers. He counted everything he saw. He counted the number of houses that they passed in the carriage on the way to church and back, 
Which numbers were not identical in both directions, he puzzled to discover. He tabulated the silverware. He enumerated the pavestones in the driveway with chalk. He counted himself to sleep. He began counting himself to sleep when he was only four years of age, counting often to very high numbers, because often he found his sleep denied him because Bo, who was afraid of the dark, reached his hand out for Richard in the drawer beside his bed and begged him to hold it until he had gone safely to sleep. Because it seemed he could not please his grandmother, Richard tried very hard to do so. He anticipated her. He anticipated everything. He observed what pleased her and what did not, and carefully modulated his words, his posture, his mannerisms, the way he combed his hair, the attitude he evinced, so as to please her. Yet nothing pleased her. It always seemed to him that he was poised to displease her, that whatever he did was not good enough, for she was forever criticizing him, even if upon doing the right thing he was complimented, he felt her condescension. He could have, should have done better. He knew. Two consequences occurred. In the first consequence, Richard became a fastidious little boy, nervously attentive to details and correctness to a degree that interfered with childish happiness that all of us should feel as children. He had none of that happiness, none of it ever, as far as I know. In the second consequence, Richard led a secret life. He had a hiding place in the closet under the stairs, and in its cozy darkness pretended to be someone other than who he was. He stole things, small and unimportant things for the most part, various buttons, wishbones from the roasted birds of every kind. The butler's comb, a jar of black currant jelly from the pantry, his grandmother's thimble. He created in his closet a cupboard beneath a floorboard wherein he stashed his treasures. There he collected many things and kept account of them. All of this was harmless and unnoticed in the main, except for some occasional remark upon some trivial missing item, until certain events when Richard and Beau came of age. Richard's own birthday should not be celebrated, whereas for Beau the celebration would be a fabulous event, the talk of Oak Park, to which all the best people were invited, a grand carnival upon the mansion's lawn, under panoplies of yellow silk, with ice sculptures of Grecian goddesses in the heat of August bearing ice bowls of ruby wines. Toasts with flutes of champagne, a bounteous presentation of costly gifts, and a cavalcade of lovely local debutantes. Boo-boo, darling, cooed his mother. Would you please check upon the wines? I fear the expressmen shall have damaged them upon transport, or may have purloined some portions. Please, darling. And chucking her frowsy... Lapdog's chin added, We love you, little poo-poo, don't we, don't we? Referring rather to the dog in this instance. Richard, wishing to please her, interceded, I will do it, grandmother. She did not look at him when he spoke, but said, Very well, do not break anything. 
and calling after him, she reminded Richard to count at least three times to be sure of his numbers. Beau was inattentive to these events, standing at the table of his birthday gifts and asking, Mummy, can I just open this little one? Richard found the expressman hauling the last of the casks of wine into the cellar down the cellar stairs next to the kitchen entrance. They ignored him when he chastened them for carelessness. His criticism was unwarranted, but he fretted about the bruising that the barrels took as they were rolled uprighted and knocked about. They laughed at him and told him to tend to his own knitting. The remark, Richard thought, was meant to affront his masculinity and he angrily demanded to know the name of the one who had insulted him. But the man, pausing to grin archly at him, pushed him aside and left him alone in the cellar. Richard forgot for a moment why he was there, and then began to count the casks. The malice of the actions that then he took was ambiguous even to him. He did love his brother. He had been offended by the haughty expressman, but who shall be hurt most by the actions that he took to unplug and let empty all the casks of wine? And in the end, he did not report that the casks were empty. He returned and said, I have counted them, grandmother, and there are twelve. Are you certain? she doubted. Yes, he nodded. You counted three times. She did not believe him. He did not reply. In the following days, Richard earnestly assisted his grandmother, while Beau, distracted by the excitement of the pending celebration, was inclined to snack on the cakes and sweets that were prepared in the kitchen. While Beau sat on a stool chatting with the cook, fattening himself, Richard fawned on his grandmother, who worried over details upon which she sent him to investigate, to amend, or to forestall from any error. In this way, Richard saw to it that the ice sculptures broke and melted, the gifts should disappear, and the invitations to the debutantes include obscenities. Thus, on the day of his birthday, Beau found that no one attended, that there were no ice sculptures, no ice bowls of ruby wines, no flutes of champagne, no costly gifts. When it was discovered and Richard was confronted, he declared his innocence. Grandmother, how can you think this of me? I did everything that you asked. He proceeded to plausibly blame the expressmen, the postmen, anarchists, and Catholics, all of whom at one time or another his grandmother had herself indicted of even worse crimes. But Beau also did not believe him. And though he loved him very much, being hurt and disappointed for the loss of the costly gifts, he confided to his mother what he believed, that Richard had done these spiteful things from envy for him. His mother became very angry and concluded that it must be so, and called Richard to stand before her and Beau and told them that he was no longer welcome in the house that he was an orphan and a bastard, and he was no good and an ingrate, that he was a thief and a rascal. Beau, sick at heart, for this was not what he had foreseen, wept when Richard left the house for an unknown domesticity. 
but the two of them had previously gotten employment in the insurance business once owned by Mr. Poofle. Bo employed as heir to its management in the fullness of time, and Richard employed for his mathematical genius. And therefore they continued to see one another daily, working across from one another, though Grandmother began to poison Richard's superiors concerning Richard and his dubious character. Bo quickly and heartily reconciled to Richard, feeling sorrowful regret for what his mother had done and commiserating upon Richard's earnest conviction that it was an injustice, that it was the consequence of her unwanted malice toward him. Bo overtly agreed, though he privately recognized that Richard was guilty of the matters of which he'd been accused. But though guilty of those things, things that on their face were hurtful to him personally, even more than to his mother, Bo nonetheless forgave him, loving him as he did. When Richard then invited him to a life of adventure, he could not refuse. Bo left home himself within days of Richard's departure, taking a carpet bag of shirts, having forgotten pants, and refusing to speak to his mother, who, for her part, also resolutely refused to acknowledge him, believing that he should suffer as he must and inevitably return. Richard and Bo rented a cottage on the lake, and while Bo particularly missed the cook, he did not much miss his mother. She, determined to see him fashion himself into a man, sent his pants and other clothes onto him in a trunk, without a note or a message. Thus matters stood, and if Bo should tolerate his alienation from his mother, and if his mother should tolerate the absence of her son, then Richard should also be content. But he was not. He complained about his grandmother. He complained about her wealth. He complained that someday she would regret how she had treated him. I have a phone that doesn't ring, a line that doesn't sting, a letter never sent. I have a dream where snowflakes fall inside a painted hall. Ha! Huh. That don't pay the rent!